Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator. This is the first in a series exploring provocative themes and artworks that feature in RA exhibitions. Tonight we will be discussing Anselm Kiefer's Heroic Symbols, which documented a provocative performance art project known as Occupations, where the artist gave the forbidden Nazi salute in a variety of European locations. Joining us to probe Kiefer's motivations regarding this taboo gesture is Professor Andrew Renton, who is the Director of Marlborough Contemporary and Professor of Curating at Goldsmiths University of London. He has curated many exhibitions internationally and has been a columnist for the Evening Standard and is the author of hundreds of articles, books and monographs on art. Joining him is Lara Day, who's in the middle, who has written on German artists including Anselm Kiefer. Her doctoral research examined the writer and architect Paul Schultz Nürnberg, and she is currently completing a volume entitled The Persistence of Race in German History, Re-Examining Constructions and Perceptions of Cultural Narratives of Race in the Wilhelmine Empire, the Weimar Republic, and under National Socialism. And finally, to chair tonight's discussion, we welcome back Dr. Christian Weikop, who is the Chancellor's Fellow in History of Art at University of Edinburgh and a specialist in modern and contemporary German art. He has published extensively in this field, including a catalogue essay for the current Antal Kiefer exhibition here at the Royal Academy. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our speakers. Thank you very much, Amy. And I think we're going to start today uh, with a short presentation, a largely descriptive presentation, which will help provide a wider context for some of the works that you will see, particularly in room one of the exhibition. Uh, And I'm going to resist the temptation to interpret too much because I want to leave that very much for the conversation that I'll have with uh, Lara and Andrew. But I do want to provide you with some kind of context here. So um, last year, October... Uh, of last year, I was uh, very fortunate in being able to travel out to Quasi, outside of Paris, to interview the artist Ansam Kiefer in his huge studio complex. And um, I was there primarily, I suppose, to interview him regarding my essay for the catalogue, which was on representations of trees and forests in his work. But I also took the opportunity to ask him about his very earliest work whilst I was there. And as um, I walked around the studio after the interview, I was amazed to see the ghostly presence, if you like, of his very earliest work, Occupations, on the sides of various installations. Here you see an example um, on a concrete tower, this sort of misshapen concrete tower. And um, there were other installations also that referred back to that work from 1969. It's a sort of relic-like persistence of, of memory, in a sense. So Kiefer you know, first performed uh, this Siegheil salute uh, gesture uh, in his Vonatelier in Karlsruhe in 1969. And um, in a sense, this can be regarded, I suppose, as a rehearsal for staging the action in various European locations that Amy has already referred to in her introduction. And here you see Kiefer in a crocheted dress, standing on a chair. And in the other image, he appears to be walking on water, 
um, standing on his bathtub there on a submerged stool, in fact, but it gives the illusion that he's walking on water in this rather messy uh, studio space. Um, so he then staged this action in various uh, locations in uh, 1969, including the Place Royale du Peru in Montpellier, where as a solitary figure he saluted in the middle of tree-lined promenades, avenues that could be stand-ins, in fact, for Albert Speer's parade grounds, and the stark sculptural pruned plane trees with their distorted clubbed branches seem to echo almost Kiefer's gesture, as you can see here. Kiefer also saluted under the Colonnade of St. Peter's and in front of the ruined grandeur of the Colosseum, suggesting a connection between the Nazi salute and the old Roman Ave salute, adopted by the Italian fascists and then the Nazis. He also saluted among the Roman ruins um, uh, at the Forum at Paestum and on the perimeter of the Vesuvius crater, wearing a suit, sandals, and easy rider-style sunglasses, looks a bit like Jack Nicholson, I think, uh, in this particular work. And as the sun catches a, a fold in the, the crotch of his trousers, he almost has the demeanor or the look of a porn star of this period. Uh, there are numerous potential sources of inspiration for Kiefer's action, not least uh, his mentor Joseph Boyce, who saluted in front of a crucifix at a rowdy performance at the Festival of New Art in Aachen in 1964. And it was really Boyce who was the first to approve of uh, Kiefer's work to validate the action. He said, in fact, to Kiefer, yes, this is, this is good work. Uh, because, you know, when it was first shown to his tutors, there was great consternation. Um, people were getting very worried about what he was doing. <clears throat> and, of course, you know, there are many parodic treatments of Hitler and Zeke Heiling Nazis in visual culture, although I'm not suggesting that all of these examples inspired Kiefer, or in the case of uh, Ottmar Hurler, uh, he was influenced by Kiefer's work. Kiefer did know Cha Chaplin's great dictator, though, and he spoke to me of his admiration for the film. Um, but he related to me that Chaplin later regretted his representation of Hitler, saying that Hitler was not, of course, a clown, but a truly terrible man. <clears throat> Kiefer first showed photographs and creative paintings that responded to photographs in various ways as part of his final degree, examination in the studios of the uh, Kunstakademie in Karlsruhe. As I say, this provo provoked consternation among many professors. He also used the photographs uh, in his early books, such as Fajon Genet and Heroic Symbols. And the title Heroic Symbols in uh, German Heroische Sinnbilder is derived from an article by the Nazi art theorist Robert Scholz in a February 1943 issue of the National Socialist Art magazine Die Kunst im Deutschen Reich. Kiefer would appropriate and recontextualize photos from such magazines with his own occupations photographs. And he would often synthesize both uh, in watercolors and oils. And so Kiefer's books really, I suppose, can be understood as the incubators of many of the ideas that were later executed by the artist on a larger scale in different media uh, there. And you can see that example with Heroic Symbol 2. That painting, in fact, appeared in an exhibition... No, it appeared in an exhibition catalogue, Fierzein Mal Fierzein, in 1973. But according to Kiefer, it was never actually shown in the exhibition itself. 
1971, he did attempt to show some of the heroic symbol paintings in a group show in Stuttgart, but the artworks were rejected. Um, and then they pretty much disappeared from public view until the gallerist Heiner Bastian and Kiefer rediscovered the work in an old industrial container in Kiefer's studio in Barjak. These paintings were restored, and you can see some of the examples in room one of the Royal Academy exhibition, and they're now to be found in the uh, collection Wurt in Baden-Württemberg. The oil paintings have a quite different effect to the book images due primarily to the fact of scale, colour, and they have a dreamy, almost surrealist treatment of the subject. The most outlandish of all the works in this cycle is Heroic Symbol 8, which shows Kiefer saluting um, uh, in front of the enthroned Pope Pius XII, a controversial individual because he remained silent while German atrocities were committed during World War II. Uh, so between 1969 and 1970, Kiefer created many artworks featuring this saluting figure. Uh, such as uh, Everyone Stands Under His Own Dome of Heaven of 1970. And he explored the, the theme in a variety of media. You can see some more examples here. So um, these photographs, referred to often as the Occupations photographs, were first published, in fact, in 1975 in Benjamin Buchlow's art magazine Interfunktionen. And such was the sensation generated by the publication of the work that the mag magazine actually folded. In response to Kiefer's work, the artist Marcel Breuters is documented as angrily stating, who is this fascist who thinks he is an anti-fascist, Ignor ignoring perhaps uh, other representations of Hitler by left-wing artists such as John Hartfield. The last photograph in the occupation cycle was perhaps the most striking, and it featured Kiefer seen from behind, saluting the sea at set in a manner that seemed to ape Caspar David Friedrich's famous painting, Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog, uh, perhaps making some uncomfortable associations also between the Romantic tradition and the rise of National Socialism, and also reminding us that Caspar David Friedrich was co-opted, or as Kiefer likes to say, misused in Nazi propaganda. Echoes of occupations or heroic symbols can be identified in a number of other Kiefer works from different phases of his career, including the Chairman Mao series of 2000, a series that again expressed Kiefer's interest in the processes of iconicity and iconoclasm. And also, notably, in the Gagosian show of 2010 in New York, entitled Next Year in Jerusalem which included some of the original photographs from 1969, enlarged to mural size, and printed on 76 lead sheets, suspended from steel hooks below fluorescent lights and contained in this huge steel uh, construction. So you can see then that um, this early work, his earliest work, repeated in various forms in, throughout his career, still has uh, importance and resonance to him. So I think I'm going to stop there with the presentation, and perhaps we can get into some conversation mode now with a few questions. But I just wanted to provide you with that uh, visual context. So um, a question to you, to you both. 
Could I ask, what were your initial impressions when you first saw uh, heroic symbols or occupations for the first time? Were you shocked or offended, or did you see something in the photographs that didn't elicit that kind of response? Um, Well, I I want to start a little bit further forward um, in order to go back to those. Um, I I guess the first Kiefer works that I saw um, probably in the 80s when I'm sort of starting to look at art as uh, as a teenager um, troubled me in a weird kind of way more the, the, the you know those large Teutonic hallways and, and, and those spaces that seem to echo a vision of Nazi architecture that really freaked me out much much more than doing the homework and discovering those earlier works of the Nazi salutes um, and I would say that on a personal level, I think my kind of relationship to Kiefer has kind of blown hot and cold since then because of precisely um, the ambiguity of the images. The interesting thing about the Nazi salute is that there's, in a way there's kind of no ambiguity to it. We all know what it is. We all know it is forbidden. We all know that it remains forbidden. It is perhaps the most unambiguous symbol of the 20th century, if not of many centuries gone by. Um, and so... What would it mean for a man, albeit in a strange crocheted dress in 1969, to make a Nazi salute? Well, 1969, let's think about that. That's within a lifetime of the end of the war, but it belongs to an entirely different era. There's a moment of incredible permission and possibility in 1969, and certainly in terms of the type of art that's being made at that moment. And so um, I think it's far from being disarmed as an image, it's extremely problematic. And yet, I think there's something very interesting about uh, the possibility of doing it. And it's very interesting, Christine, because you talked and you brought it full circle and talked about. The, the series from next year in Jerusalem, I think that's very telling for me because in a way you might say, just to recap, that you know, that's a series that's, that revisits these images decades later uh, in, the, in the kind of sheen and gloss of a very um, uh, prosperous commercial art gallery. What's interesting about that and the title of the show, which is explicitly Jewish... Um, and uh, what, what's very interesting is that it comes full circle, and for me it says, and for me it sort of animates my particular history. Ah, those images are now visible. They're now seeable. And I think that we belong to an era where we've just started to see again the legacies of the Nazi era, particularly in relation to art. And I think I, I, I would add Kiefer to that whole... I don't think it's an accident that we're discovering more and more, let's say, uh, Nazi looted art now. It's not an accident. It's because the veils have been lifted, because permissions uh, have been granted, because we can see what we chose to unsee for a very long time. And what I now, with hindsight, and I'm sorry, I'm talking too much, but now, with hindsight, I'm grateful to him in 1969, to stand on his bath or to stand on the table, to stand in the middle of wherever and give that salute because that seemed like a terrifyingly courageous act on his part. And I think we shouldn't underestimate that. 
And I think that hindsight is very, is very useful. But I think that he was doing something that probably scared the pants off him. I mean, the attic paintings to which you refer, which you said you found more problematic, yeah. I mean, of course, they also caused a sensation when Absolutely. they were shown in the Venice Biennale Absolutely. in 1980. Yeah. So we have the incident in 1975 when the occupation's photographs are shown in Interfunctionen causes the collapse of the magazine. And then in 1980, the Venice Biennale is when a number of German critics, in fact, referred to Kiefer and Baselitz as, uh, you know, possibly borderline neo-fascist. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a certain sort of, um, you know, because there's no critique explicit there in those paintings, then people worry about, um, worry about what they might uh, be favouring what they might choose to be sympathizing with. But for me, what's made them lasting, it's very interesting to see them here, and it's really exciting to see them again. What's, it's not that they've been disarmed, it's that they've survived precisely because of the ambiguity of what they are trying to negotiate. There's no... You, there's, you, you, you can't just say, you know, Nazis bad, us good. You can't... The, the world doesn't work like that, and the ambiguity that's presented there makes them useful for us, makes us question ourselves and position ourselves when we stand in relation to them. We don't need to like them. We don't even need to approve of them, and I think that's part of the sophistication of the work. I think it, the other thing, just by the way, that annoyed me, I think, when I first encountered those paintings was that he was invoking people in my name, and I thought, hang on, no, you're not taking my Paul Ceylon from me. You're not taking away the uh, hero or anti-hero of exactly that era that you're trying to, to comment on. I, I resented him quoting. I, you know, I could resent him quote, quoting next year in Jerusalem. It could be a cheap trick. But I think... I want to make a pitch for him in relation to ambiguity because I think that those, those works that force you as an individual to negotiate your ethical relationship to that work, I feel those works are the works that are the most lasting and the most useful for us in trying to clarify this murky, murky past that we all clearly disapprove of. But what are the tools that we can use to do that? We can be dogmatic, we can be black and white about it, but there is no black and white. And so therefore, what we want is art that helps us position ourselves. So in, in, a, in a weird kind of way, he, uh, he's almost a kind of sacrificial victim of his own work mm -hmm. in order to help us understand where we stand. Of course we're going to be irritated by a man standing in, 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 you know, by the Colosseum... Uh, making a Nazi salute. I just, I'm going to pass over to Lara in a moment, but I just want to pick something up, what you were saying there about the Jewish uh, yeah. uh, context and response. I mean, I think it's interesting that after that Venice Biennale a sensation where the German art critics were very resistant to the work, to say the least, you know, Kiefer in the 1980s, correct me if I'm wrong, he was acquired first, I think, by primarily Jewish yeah. uh, collectors in New York um, yeah. and elsewhere. I mean, that doesn't necessarily um, legitimise anything. 
It, it, do, it doesn't, but of course, it, but, you know, it's interesting that his work, if you go to the Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin, you'll see his work dominate the main concourse. There was a kind of reluctance to show Kiefer at all, I think, in Germany in, in, in the yeah, 80s. I, and, and one of those, you know, one of those first museums to really show him in a big way was the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, right. you know, I mean... Uh, Would you think, did that give him some kind of validation in the sense that... I, I, think, that's, I think that's too easy. I, 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 I've thought about that I, I, and I would worry about it, but actually um, I think it's a much, much more legitimate negotiation. I think it's much more about um, uh, him grappling with where he might be in the world. And I, don't think it's, and I don't think it's a lightweight engagement there. I think those contexts are very important to him. And it's, it's not an accident that he's also delved deeper into sort of, uh, sort of mystical as, aspects of Judaism and so on. So it's not just about history, but it's also about kind of very, very esoteric theology as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I, I don't think it's legitimized. And I think a museum like... Uh, the Israel Museum for sure would have grappled with it ten times over, but what you know? But those are the. Do we? Here's the ethical question: Do we uh, ever choose? Where, where's the limit in terms of those works that are permissible in our world and not permissible in our world? Even if the work were truly problematic and had problematic origins, and it, I don't think it does. Is there a is there a is there a place where we can say no, it's it's not appropriate. Let's not show it. Let's ban it. Let's suspend it. Let's make it invisible. Or are we then falling into the same sort of traps um, of, of of the of the era that I believe he was trying to critique? What's very interesting for me in relation to this, and I I'm, I will then stop talking, um, is that. I do associate it directly, I do link it directly with a kind of collective consciousness that enables us to see again those works that were lost during the Nazi era, particularly those works that were collected, uh, those works that were originally banned, looted, sent away from the vision uh, of Germany that was, was to happen. But guess what? When you know, they recently discovered that incredible treasure trove of, uh, of art that had, been, that had been sort of squirreled away for decades. Um, um, and, and you realize that it is the history of 20th century art that we cherish. Turns out the Nazis had terrible taste in art. I mean, it's an amazing thing. They, it, it wasn't just that they had terrible taste in art. They had spectacularly 100% got it wrong. I mean, like, history turns out to have said they got it wrong to the infinitesimally wrong degree. There is not one thing that the Nazis cherished that we still cherish in our art history. Would you agree with that, Lara? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine, that's fine. No, I mean, there, I don't know. I think, I think my response to that is just to say there is no such thing as a Nazi taste in art. Um, and we know, you know, just as a, as a, just a very, very brief sort of secretary, we know that, that Goebbels and, and Rosenberg have a massive clash about it, and that Goebbels champions people like Balach, of whom we're, we're still quite fond, so it's... Okay. But, but known as a fascist artist. Balach? Maybe. No. No? No, 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 no. Ernst Balach, um, no, he's an expressionist 
writer oh, and sculptor no, 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 Bala. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah, no, yeah, no. Are you thinking of Nolan? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no. Um, actually, I have sort of a follow-up question to you, um, just in the sense that Kifa's actions. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning and that we know is that the gesture obviously continues to be forbidden, um, right? The law is passed November 30th, 1945, forbidding the, the wearing of Nazi uniforms and the um, performance of these gestures. But last summer, I think August, I'm not sure what the exact date is, 2013, Jonathan Neese, who's this German uh, performance artist, is, grant, is, is um, let off from the charges of performing this gesture. Um, he performed it once in Kassel, I think, as part of an action called uh, Die Kunst als Diktatur, so art as, as dictatorship, and then again on stage as part of a play. Um, and because the German courts let him off, he now has the right, as a Kunstfigur, so as a figure of art, to perform this gesture. So I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm just sort of wondering how we feel about that, because I think that is a direct you know, there is a direct sort of arc from Kiefer's performance and, and these photographs and the showing of the work and are accepting this more now to Mises being allowed to perform it. Um, he hasn't performed it publicly since. He performs it at sort of private gatherings, but he has said quite clearly that he will perform it again. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just wondering how you yeah, feel so, about that. So is the fascist gesture then ever justifiable artistically uh, speaking or otherwise? Well, and, and this at this point... How big is the shift from someone like Kiefer performing it? And I would argue here that Kiefer performs it in order to document it. It's not about the performance as such. There's not a mass audience. Um, it's not really for the mass media in this, in this early series. But how, how big is the shift that it's now sort of court-sanctioned for one person, obviously, as a performance? Well, it is interesting. I mean, I think you raise another interesting point, which is that um, you know, Christian, you've given us a, a, a great presentation of the history of Kiefer's gestures. Many of them are very private, mm -hmm. very intimate. Mm -hmm. And history, it turns out that Kiefer is one of the great artists of our time, and so therefore these take on a new weight. Uh, I, I, I think it's a very, very personal thing. I think Mises' uh, gesture is much more explicit, much more public. It's, it's about grappling with the legal implications of it and so on. Um, and you know, I think we shouldn't forget the intimacy of 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 these uh, of, of, of these gestures. Yes. Which, which I mean, Keith was often represented, you know, by himself in his yeah. studio space. I mean, this is you know very different to Lenny Riefenstahl's sort of spectacular work. You know, crowds zeekheiling in Nuremberg, well, or to boys, or to boys. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's playing with, with the masses as well. Mm -hmm. No, I, 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 absolutely, and we, and, we, and, yeah. we, and we saw that. But, I mean, Kiefer, Kiefer, I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't think it was easy for Kiefer, even if it was a small gesture and if it was an intimate gesture. Um, and I think for, for lots of reasons, and, you know, uh, if, only, if only because you know that... But it, it was a gesture that took place often in public, grand public spaces. So, I mean... The question is, how do we understand this term occupations, or in, in German, yeah. uh, you know, what are, the, what are the meanings of this term occupations in relation to Kiefer's work, do you think? But can we, can we just sort of, sort of bring it back into the, sure. to the Mises thing yeah. as well? Because I, 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 there's an implication if Mises now has the legal right to do this here on in, 
Because this could lead to an erosion of the law. We could say, you know what, 60 years in, maybe it's enough already. Um, let's, let's make it legal again. Well, you know? I mean, it will lead to an erosion of the law because it is precedent. You know, so okay, let me, let me throw it back to you. Yeah. Um, would it be more interesting to retain that legal prohibition and sort of just keep butting up against it because that keeps asking the question? The issue is the, the, the issue is, is is clearly about the issue is clearly about not forgetting. Mm. The issue is about where and when you might contextualise such a uh, such a gesture. We're learning more and more about it. I, I believe that we can see more and more. Would I stop Misa doing it? Not at all. Um, do I think he adds to the story? Not really. No. So, L- Lara, since that Misa court case, what what you're saying is that artists now have some kind of special dispensation. You know, well, artists yeah. always have a special decision. <laughs> but that's 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 the really tricky yeah, yeah, area yeah. that we're in mm-hmm. because there's a, there's a, artists have the special dispensation and they transcend ethics. If we expect our artists to be like Superman, always trying to sort of save, um, you know, uh, the 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 downtrodden, we're going to be very disappointed by artists, and we're going to find them quite sort of flat. And, and sort of mm. one-dimensional. Um, I'm not saying that he's not an ethical artist or whatever, but I mean, I, I don't think we can expect an artist to be that absolute voice of moral truth. No. The opposite, in a way. You know. No, no. I want to draw us back to Kiefer, though, yeah. for, for a moment, and back to uh, his motivations for doing this in the first instance in in '69. You know, I've mentioned the term occupations. What does that mean in relation to this work? It seems to have multiple meanings. Perhaps, Laura, you want to talk a little bit about that. But the fact that he repeated the action so many times, uh, often taking photographs of himself, slightly different position at any one given site, um, is there anything about this compulsion to repeat the gesture that is significant? Um, Is there something exorcistic about the gesture, and if so, what was Kiefer exorcising? I mean, I, well, it, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of ground to cover. Um, I think exorcistic, no, because implicit in the term exorcism is that you can actually excise something, you can actually move on, which I think Kiefer, as a member of the generation born after the war, so the Nakabon generation, and as we know, you know, by dint of sort of two months before the end of the war. Um, would would say quite firmly and, and says to us through his work and through the inclusion of these images in the 2010 show um, that in fact you can't you, you can't actually leave it behind you cannot excise your country's history um, one of the things obviously that comes up is this German idea of Vergangenheitsbewältigung, so coming to terms with the past but it means more than just coming to terms with it actually does mean this sort of overturning moving beyond which again I would argue is is impossible. That's sort of the thing that we're caught in. That's the catch-22. So is is um, that what next year in Jerusalem is about then? This, this huge this, container, this, the persistence of memory that Kiefer doesn't want to allow us to forget or something along those lines? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think, so. yeah, I think, that, I think that's I think right. So. I mean, that's, a, that's such a specific... That's such a specific... Is that okay question. to appropriate that? Because I, I find that sort of so problematic, but I don't... Just to explain, um, and those of you who don't know, I mean, next year in Jerusalem is the last line that you say on, on Seder night, on the Passover 
um, and you're sitting around the table and you are commemorating no longer being slaves. But it's an interesting statement to make having spent the whole night discussing why you are no longer slaves because you're saying next year in Jerusalem, not, 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 not now in Jerusalem, um, next year in Jerusalem. And, and, and that's a very interesting kind of aspirational moment to, to, to end on. We, we celebrate our freedom, but actually we're not quite free. So there's a very, very interesting... I mean, the, is it okay? Absolutely, it's okay. Um, <laughs> it, it feels a bit weird... If yeah. you, you know, it, it's it, 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 but I think that's because I think he's 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 understood that very very well how significant that phrase is. I think the least religious Jew would know next year in Jerusalem, you know, and I think that that's quite interesting. Again, it transcends religion, and it goes into a kind of identity and and so on. Not necessarily that we sort of aspire to being next year in Jerusalem, but in a certain sense, we aspire next year to be uh, less displaced than we are and there is a sense of displacement here which is the consequence of the second world war and 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 so there's a there's still a kind of regrouping that 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 needs to take place and 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 that's that's the chaos in which he's operating you know there is a kind of chaos there there is a kind of blindness there is a kind of muddled mess so look at this gesture that cuts through all of that and sort of and sort of rises above it. I mean, whether you love it or hate it. How, how was Kiefer attempting, do you think, to address his father's generation and perhaps his own generation? Because I find it interesting that for a number of these photographs, he wears his father's sort of paramilitary coat, if you like. He uses Art in the Third Reich, the magazine, copies of which his father owned, kept in the attic, he brought down... He also listened, you know, almost like a method actor, if you like, to recordings of Goebbels and Rosenberg and others to prepare himself for actually making this gesture. You know, what, what, what is he saying about his father's generation or to his father's generation and how perhaps is he speaking to his contemporaries by doing this? I feel like, I, actually, I think it's, it's almost conciliatory because I think there's a sense in which, because he's, he's willing to actually perform this, he's actually willing to, to take this sort of kind of aesthetic approach and perform the gesture. And so not only, I don't know, I mean, there's so many things that are happening there, but I think in terms of the, his father's generation, he's, he's saying, you know, look, just because 1945 has come and gone doesn't mean that any of these things have actually changed. It doesn't just change. There's no caesura. It's not over. The gesture, perhaps, which is, which is, I think, the reason we're also sort of frightened by it, perhaps the gesture is something that we've learned that is, that is in us that can sort of spring out, which is one of the things that I think is, is happening with these repeated performances of it. There's something involuntary. And one of the film stills that you showed is Dr. Strangelove, where you see the character of the scientist perform the salute to the U.S. president twice because it's, there's just something where it's been trained so sort of deeply. Um, but I think, I mean, I think the other thing that Kiefer is asking by performing this, or that he's asking his audience, is, you know, am I a Nazi because I'm a German? Am I a Nazi because of when I was born? Am I a Nazi because I'm performing the gesture? And if the answer to any of those things is right, I think then we have to also ask ourselves: Are we not? just sort of continuing this idea of blood and soil that's preached by the Nazis, that, that, that ties identity and behavior to your point of origin, which, which I think Kiefer is, 
is attempting to ask us. Um, but really, it's, so he's asking some difficult because I've showed some examples from visual culture of Mickey mm-hmm. Mouse, Charlie Chaplin. But in a sense, you know, these gestures then exist in the in the sphere of parody, and parody somehow doesn't is not satisfying. In, in, in explaining what Kiefer is doing. So you're suggesting he's doing something much more risky. But isn't it so. interesting, in these repeated gestures, with Charlie Chaplin and with Kiefer moving throughout Europe, trying to repeating this gesture, it's interesting that that gesture is not disarmed in the repetition. It's really interesting that it still has a power. We're still, in 2014, still talking about... That, that kind of feeling when you see it. And so that's, that, for me, is kind of really interesting. And I think that there is a legacy there. I think there is a but legacy. But do, do you think it's as provocative today as, as it might have been in 1975, for instance, when the photographs were first seen in that magazine, Interfunctionen? Uh, is it as provocative? I think it's still provocative. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what's interesting? It brought home, and I, we were just talking before, um, before we came in here, and I, I was in Germany last week, and I'm working with an artist of a younger generation. He's about 60 years old. Um, and I was in his studio, and um, it was we, we had a fantastic day together, and we were looking, you know, working through all of his work over the past 20 years. And, and um, his studio is a is a, is a converted hotel, a ballroom of a of an old hotel. And what was really interesting is, round about lunchtime, he he said to me, "But you know, this ballroom wasn't." used by the Nazis, it was used by the communists. Now, what struck me at the time was that, that what he was saying is, no, no, I know you know, I know we're still thinking about it. I know that the minute we discuss history in terms of Germany, we have to negotiate this. This continues to be a negotiation. And it's quite interesting. He wasn't being apologetic. He was just being really factual about it. But, you know, um, but I, it, 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 it strikes me that that history is ever-present three generations on. And why is it interesting that an upstart like Misa wants to have, a, have another go is, is, is precisely because these gestures have not been disarmed. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't be disarmed. And we should, we, should, you know, we should still deal with them. And it's partly the fault of our desire, our necessary desire, historically, post-1945, to make those symbols... Uh, illegal because yet we needed to do that it was necessary to do nevertheless those things will not go away and it's very interesting that curatorially uh, museums are starting to uh, sort of reintroduce a lot of those images that were just not appropriate and young artists are starting to you know bring in images imagery from that era even if it's sort of via sort of a sort of Hollywood version of that but I'm thinking that, just to, just to sort of thicken the stew a bit, you know that many of you will know very well that, that extraordinary painting by Gerhard Richter of his uncle Rudi, which is that sort of, that, that sort of grey, blurry painting of, of, uh, of his uncle wearing a Nazi greatcoat. And it's Uncle Rudi, it's not... Captain Rudy or, you know, whatever. It, it's, it's his uncle, and yet the uncle is smiling through the blur, blur being an interesting kind of uh, thing. Um, and and he's, he's, he's part of his generation. You can't erase that. 
Can I, can I follow that up with, uh, in reference to Richter? Because it's interesting, I think, that you know, Benjamin Buchlow, famous art critic, who supported a young Kiefer uh, in this magazine in 1975, was very enthusiastic about his work, then turned against Kiefer, I think after the Venice Biennale, when he felt he was moving away from photography or photoconceptualism, um, whatever you might want to say there, towards painting, uh, but then became, you know, a very much a champion of Richter. Yeah. How do you see Richter and Kiefer uh, together in this respect? It's a difficult question, but how they, do they address the German past in a, in a different way, or is it different? Why does Buchlo celebrate Richter and have so many problems with Kiefer? I think, for me, because I think that even when Richter is being figurative, he, Buchlo would like to... Um, he would like to give credence to Richter's move towards abstraction. Mm. So the blur that I just mentioned before, which is, the, which is that sort of the way that Richter sort of scrapes it with a dry brush across those figurative paintings, is his way of sort of slightly unseeing the past. And, uh, and I think it's a kind of very interesting kind of uh, sort of negotiation with what is representable and what is not representable. It's quite interesting because I think what, what's, what's great about Richter, of course, is that he treats Uncle Rudy in his Nazi greatcoat exactly the same as a sort of clip from a sort of porn mag from the 60s or whatever. And that equivalence shows exactly the kind of moral ambiguity that we face. It's quite interesting, I think, then for, 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 for Buchler, of course, that really, you know, Richter becomes this incredibly abstract artist. And so there's this kind of negotiation, not just in terms of subject matter, but also in terms of the history of painting. And where it becomes even more interesting, I think, is when the next generation come along, the, 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 the upstarts like, I don't know, like Kippenberger, for example, who comes along in, in, you know, in about 1982, 83, and buys, because you still could in those days, buys a little Richter painting and turns it into a coffee table. And that's, that's the moment where I kind of think that sort of the, the beginning of a kind of recovery in, in terms of German history. So you realize just how monumental the burden of Germanness is in that generation of Richter and Kiefer and, and, and so on. And how kind of liberating this, the, the generation afterwards. And you only realize it once you see these guys who are literally turning the whole thing on its head. Um, you actually find that they're actually, weirdly, there are Kippenberger paintings that look a lot like Kiefer paintings, but they're coming from a different place. They're coming from a place of sort of parodying the Kieferness and the solemnity of, of those paintings. Sure. But you've got to be grateful to... Uh, the, the next generation wouldn't have existed were, were there not this solidity. I haven't quite answered your question about, about, about Richter, but I think that they... Um, this, if you, it's one thing to be German, but to be a German artist at that moment, what is your subject matter? Do you choose to repress your subject matter? Do you choose to repress... The, the, what goes on around you, and I think that uh, you know, I think there is a big contribution here that, that 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 Richter makes at this point, not necessarily 
there are relatively few works in there that actually refer directly to the history in a way that Kiefer just kind of just sort of puts it straight in your face. But I think that they both represent a kind of persistence of um, in the back of your mind there is no escaping our father's generation. Do you, do you want to say something about that point, this persistence, Laura? No escaping your father's generation. Um, I do. I guess... I guess. I have a sort of pedantic need just to, just to point out quite quickly that the artists that we're mentioning now are obviously all post-war artists, but they're all ones that are working in the Federal Republic. So we do have, you know, the other half of the country doing doing different things. Um, just just as something to keep in mind, we can't, I think, in fairness, speak about sort of German artists in no, no really in that way without considering. Um, that there's, you know, the GDR. The response to fascism from which, artists like Bernard Heisig and others. Yeah, which yeah. is just very, you know, which is a different sort of kettle of fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't really know what I can say about not being able to escape the past or your father's generation. I mean, I think... No, I think growing up in... Even growing up in contemporary Germany, my generation is taught very early, very soon, very often, very intensively about what it means to grow up as a German. Um, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, Carl Jung first writes about collective guilt and sort of says, um, writes in it about it in these almost expressionist terms and sort of says, you know, it's this cloud hanging over a people and so it's not a condemnation to say that the Germans are all collectively guilty, it's just a statement of fact, which is... Um, I don't. I don't really know, which is a statement and a half, I guess. Um, and is no, but it's impressive that now, in, in when I was growing up in the sort of nineties, going to going to high school, that was still quite true. Um, and I don't know for how much longer it will continue to be mm-hmm. true. And I wonder now, with people like Misa, just to sort of come back to him, how how long that will continue to be true. I think, mm-hmm. as a German. I, I don't know. I, I do think sometimes when I look at people performing such ge- such gestures, not Kiefer, I, I would say very specifically, but I tend to think that a lot of it is perhaps this sort of seeking attention because it is something that can always, always get attention, um, and it will always get attention. It will always draw the media, whether or not it's really truly mm-hmm. critical or or thoughtful or or just a performance. So I... Okay. I yeah, I don't know. Uh, one more question, then, before we pass over to the audience. I mean, how was it then that this young artist, you know, 1980, I won't say uh, unshowable, because he was shown, of course, but, you know, in Germany in 1980, uh, he came under a lot of fire. You know, an artist who was known for never giving interviews, I mean, these days he gives interviews, but certainly in that period he didn't give interviews. How did he move from this this position to being this acknowledged contemporary of uh, contemporary master of German art with his work in every major art collection in the world today? I, I, my instinct is, is, is that the evidence is, is, is downstairs for you, which is that actually um, it's not just about subject matter, but I think it is about materials and use of materials, a really old-fashioned thing. He's an extraordinary maker of stuff. And you can't get away from it. And, and there's something truly physical in the encounter with those works. And I think it's, been a, it's a beautifully put together show here because it's not scared of taking on some very, very difficult works and some very large works. Um, 
and uh, works that you might sort of see as bombastic. But I think there's another way of reading them, which is quite an intimate one, and it goes back to my original notion of the ethics of the encounter between the viewer and the work of art. It's up to me. It's up to you when you look at a work of art. And I think it's the same way when you encounter the physicality of his work. There's so much of that work that sort of feels like it's either not finished or it's about to fall apart. There's a kind of alchemy going on on one level, but whatever the opposite of alchemy is, turning gold into mush, you know? I mean, there's something amazing about this kind of uh, transformation that's taking place in front of your eyes. And you can't take away from the ambition of the physicality of what he's made. And I think that that's really been very, very helpful in our attempt to sort of negotiate the really difficult bits of, of Kiefer because he kind of, at the end of the day, he's a really good artist in that sense. And, you know, he did embrace, he did make a shift, particularly at that moment in 1980, to say, no, you know what... I've got to negotiate history. The best way to negotiate history is through painting. Because painting is this weird fictional device that's embedded in history. So it's about, it's the best medium to move forward. So as much as he's made these kind of extraordinary kind of sculptural things, at the heart of the practice is a body of work that if it's not painting, it sort of inhabits the same place that painting inhabits. And so how did he make the shift? I think he made the shift by being a very good artist. That's very eloquently put, Andrew. Thank you very much for that. I think we should now open uh, questions up to the audience. So, Amy, if you wouldn't mind uh, taking the roaming mic. Any questions? Yes. You can just wait a, wait a moment until the mic arrives, because this is being recorded. Um, I think maybe what you don't bring out is how much Kiefer had to do this. Um, it's not just a representation. It's actually an embodiment. Mm. And it was a really necessary thing for him to find out. I mean, he says this specifically that um, he needed to find out, you know, about the madness. I mean, he says that in another context. But, I mean, you know, you can apply it to the salutes. And, you know, the the father generation is known for being a a silent generation. It wasn't talked about. The past was not talked about. And Kiefer needed to find out for himself what it actually felt like. It's a really personal, internal process. And I think what you said about the repetition is interesting as well, this compulsion. But, I mean, the actual gesture under National Socialism was repeated. It was repeated in all communications between people. The salute. Read, till, read you know, there's a book about this and, and how it was part of, every, every, of every, everyday communication. Every time you saw somebody. So it was a gesture that was constantly being repeated under, in, in, you know, in, under national socialism. And I think that's there in, in Kiefer's repetition, too. That's a very interesting kind of extension of this, that it's, it's not just a provocative symbol, but it's actually, it's language. It's really, really... It invokes Hitler all the time. I mean, it's an invocation of 
Hitler's presence in every communication between yeah. two people. Or Thank you very much. Another question, perhaps, please? Just conscious of the time. We've got a few more minutes. Any more offers? Yes. Thank you. My, my question was really, he was living in a generation which followed a, a whole denazification process of German culture. A lot of material was completely forbidden. And I, I think much still is. It's just not, people don't have access to it. So he must have had trouble actually trying to relive the past. And probably a lot of ordinary citizens who weren't artists had the same difficulty. Yes, I mean, there was a sort of process of forgetting in the school curricula, you know, at the time, Kiefer mentioned this to me, that, you know, there was hardly anything taught, really, uh, about this in schools. And so he found out through other means, um, you know, the recordings, the American recordings of Goebbels and Hitler and, uh, you know, his father's collection of magazines and such, such like. So, um, yes, at that time when he was uh, uh, growing up in Germany... Um, there was, I think, this process of uh, at- attempting to... Uh, how would you say that, Lara? Forget? Maybe that's not the right word. Um, I'm not sure. I think, I think again, it, it would be, it would be um, too easy to make sort of a blanket statement because we know that the denazification processes were quite brief and quite um, efficient, if you will, especially in that they allowed many people to, to reoccupy... Um, positions that they'd held during the Nazi time as well. So I think it really depended on the community in which you were living. Um, I know that there were school books used for decades afterwards that contained materials that were totally inappropriate, um, not to mention books that were reissued. I mean, not to mention quite briefly the article that um, he takes the title from, that Malrika Schotz, continues to publish through the 70s and to his death in 1981 as an art historian in West Germany. He publishes on Dura, he publishes... I didn't know that. Yeah, he publishes on medieval <laughs> sculpture. He continues to be an authority. So this is, you know, even if Kiefer says, sort of, I had to learn about it by myself, this is a voyage of discovery, which, you know, may well be the case. For a lot of Germans, that's not the case. You have access to these materials. A lot of times, they're very much in circulation. You may be being taught material that you shouldn't be being taught by people who have just continued right on with their curriculum. So it's, I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the most important thing really is to say there's, there can't be sort of a pan-German statement, and certainly 1945 is not a caesura in any way. Um, thank you, Laura. Thank you. Any more questions? Yes, please. Um, I'm just wondering, oh, sorry, is there something um, I'm just thinking, is it possible that um, through repetition um, this gesture is losing its effect um, as opposed to prohibition? Because if, let's say, you prohibit the gesture, it may accumulate power over time. But if you um, repeat it on multiple occasions, it may actually take out the effect out of it. I mean, I feel quite strongly that the strange thing is that what you say is what logically should be the case. Logically, if you keep doing this and keep uh, it, it keep it happening in places, it becomes disarmed. I think the strange thing is that when we start to look at these images again and again, it doesn't. I don't quite know why that's the case. It sort of seems to defy logic because 
you know, what you say is potentially true. But I, I, for me, it feels like it's still a provocative gesture, and it's still a loaded gesture, and you can't take away from that. I think it doesn't take away from what we've been talking about, your point about it sort of being a kind of um, very, very persistent form of communication. But even in that, it's, it's loaded, because every time I then open my mouth, I'm saying, no, I buy into this. And so, so you're, you're absolutely right to, 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 to question that. But my instinct is that evidence would seem to say, uh, and, and maybe you need to ask yourself, you know, when, when I see these on, on a personal level, like, I still kind of sort of breathe in sharply because it still troubles me. So it's fascinating that that still has that power. Mm-hmm. And there are very few things that, have res- that continue to resonate like that. For thank, me. thank you, Andrew. There's one last question, and then we'll move down to the galleries. The solitude of the uh, of the images. Um, obviously, he kind of he couldn't have a gang of people around him, but but there, as they are, the figure, small and alone, is a consistent and striking feature of them. In terms of an image, one would associate with a kind of mass. <laughs> masses and mass control uh, that is uh... I think that's a very good point also the way he is attired we've seen the sort of cross-dressing images but even when he's wearing a sort of paramilitary coat you know his hair is unkempt uh, he's looking a bit like a late 60s art student rather than a, a national socialist soldier isn't he so but the solitude the isolation uh, is a good point because when as I say you look at films of Riefenstahl you know, there's great spectacle, mass crowds, you know, swastikas everywhere. But here, there's this diminutive figure, almost comically small, in fact, in some of the works, uh, which gives another kind of uh, feeling. I mean, just to add to that, I think this idea of solitude is very relevant in terms of his practice as an artist. I think that we can't take away, as much as we might want to look at those kind of photographs of him in a much larger context. I'm very intrigued by that first image that you showed in the studio. That studio practice is solitary, for the most part. Now, of course, we know that Kiefer's studio practice today is not that, because it's a kind of industry and there's a, there's a kind of whole town that's sort of dedicated to making works by Kiefer. But in principle, that the art making is a kind of solitary... It, it, is, a, it is a solitary gesture. And for me, that's sort of why it kind of produces all of those kind of um, ethical possibilities because it's only it's only you and it, um, and I think again the solitary thing is it's, it's only you and it and it being the artwork. But if the artwork isn't materialised, it's it's just this gesture. Can you know what what can what can this car- carry? And I think that that for me is also very very relevant. But I think it's not just relevant in terms of the poignancy of the images, but it also points to what it is to be an artist making works of art. It's lonely business. Thank you, Andrew. Um, Amy, I don't know if you want to say a few words, but thank you very much for coming today. It's wonderful that you're all here. Amy? Um, Just to mention that both Christian and Lara are actually working on a project at the Tate. Um, Do you want to say anything about that? Yes, I mean, this will be published next year, in fact, on Kiefer's early work uh, online. So it's open access, open to everybody. Uh, at some point in 2015, I can't give you a precise date at the moment, but there will be a project on, on heroic symbols. 
Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Um, do join us in the main galleries now where we can continue our discussions. The Heroic Symbols works are actually in the first gallery as you go in, so do stay, have a chat, walk around the, the main galleries. You've got until 8.30. But before we go, please join me in thanking Christian Vicott, Lara Day and Andrew Renton. Thank you.